Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends and what they all have in common is they have fascinating stories of their own which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Ruby. Ruby's going to tell us all about her life. So Ruby, if you could tell me where and when you were born, if you could describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. So, Hi, lovely. Over to you, Ruby. Um, so I was born in India. I am originally of um, Afghan heritage. So my family, everyone is from Afghanistan, and we are of Sikh faith. So we were a minority in Afghanistan. My parents had to flee in the late um, 80s to move to India, and then that's where my parents got married and I was born in New Delhi. So we had a very, you know, working class uh, life over there. And then when I was, I don't really remember anything about it. What I remember is um, I remember bits and bobs where like, uh, maybe I was like two and my dad used to do like trips abroad. He he found work abroad. So he used to go to like Dubai and all of those and come back like after a few months. And then I wouldn't really recognize recognize him because I was a little baby. Um, and then when we were three, we immigrated from India, we moved from here and we, I think, went like through Bombay and made our way through Holland and eventually landed up in the UK. Um, and yeah, so I was three when I came to the UK. Uh, we originally moved to northwest London in Ealing. We lived there in a small council flat, like on the top floor of a council uh, flat. And uh, downstairs, we had like also immigrants um, who were also living downstairs from a different part of the world altogether. And I lived with my dad, my brother, my mum, and uh, we lived in like a one-bedroom house, like a very small house. And then a year later, I lost my mum, unfortunately, so she passed away when I was four. Um, so at that time, obviously, we we had, had no papers, no visa, anything of that sort. Um, and then when my mum passed away, essentially, like, I was four, my brother was seven. So we had, like, social workers who got involved. We got moved from where we were living to a new area altogether. I went to a state school, so a normal public school, where, where the predominant, like, 70% of the people over there were people of colour, people who came from working class uh, backgrounds, just like myself. Uh, my dad brought us up single-handedly, so he was the sole carer of us. He wouldn't work. He would only work on the weekends, so he used to go to, um, he'd do, like, a market store on the weekends, and, and he'd sell, like, stereos and uh, electronics and stuff like that. He started off by working for someone else, and then he eventually, you know, made some money and opened up his own uh, store in the weekend markets. And then on the weekdays, he would take care of us and, you know, just take us to school and stuff. Uh, growing up, I was like, I had so many social workers. So I went from social worker to social worker to social worker. But by, by that point, like by the 10th social worker, I didn't even remember their names anymore. I just, it was like, okay, yeah, you know, like it's fine. Um, but when I went to school, I was a very average kid. So, because you have to think about it this way, like for me, Firstly, there wasn't just the the cultural, it was the, I came from a very particular culture, I immigrated to the UK, and then on top of that, I lost my mum very young. And then my dad um, had depression, it was undiagnosed for like 20 or so years, he just didn't get any help at all. Uh, to experience the death of my mom and it wasn't even you know he got married to her he had a love marriage so it wasn't even an arranged marriage it wasn't like because back in Afghanistan in those years like you'd get married you wouldn't even see what your wife looked like or your husband looked like you know that you'd find out on the wedding night oh yeah this is what my husband looks like but for my dad he fell in love with my mom at literally 17 she was 15 uh they got married when my dad was like 21 and she was 18 19 um in India so for him you know he lost the love of his life in a completely foreign country where he had no money, nothing. 70% um, of his siblings were in India at the time, no one to support him, he was completely alone. Eventually my aunts and uncles came, they also immigrated and you know, my family started helping, chipping in to take care of me and my brother. But my dad self-medicated with alcohol for much of his life, like for, you know, 
90% of his healing journey, he self-medicated with alcohol. So I had a lot of that growing up. I had a lot of going to school. All my teachers would know, like, you know, what my story was. They'd all know, okay, yeah, this is this is Ruby. This is where she's come from. This is what she's witnessed as a child. So I'd, I'd always be on the register of, you know, this child needs to be taken care of extra. But studies-wise, like, I never really had any dreams and ambitions at that age, like, say, eight, nine, that, oh, yeah, I'm I'm going to be something or I'm going to do something. However, at a very, very, very young age, I started um, resorting to reading. I turned to books, essentially, as a form of escapism, because my childhood was so adverse. There were so you know, many issues that I faced where I'd have like my school friends going on picnics, going to each other's house for sleepovers, and I'd be at the hospital by my dad's side, hoping that he didn't overdose himself this time. Like, you know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't um, the best, essentially. So I started reading books, and I started finding comfort in them, finding comfort in a different universe altogether, a different reality, a different, you know, just being able to escape the pain for a while. Um, And essentially, that's how my love for reading and books began. And then obviously that resulted in, you know, my career right now, which we'll, I guess, we'll discuss eventually. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we'll come on to that. Right. Let's have a, right. Because, okay, you're... Your parents' mother tongue, is that Pashto? Is it Dari? Or or is it one of the Indian dialects? So it's a very particular language. It's called Hindko. And it's a mixture of Hindi, Punjabi and Pashto. So we have like phrases of Pashto in there. We have phrases of Hindi. We have Punjabi. But if someone were to speak Pashto, they would never, they would not understand what we're saying. Maybe someone who is speaking Hindi might be able to get bits and bobs of what we're saying. But it's a very particular language. Hindko is like it's a dialect that's spoken in a part of Pakistan as well. So the the part of Pakistan that's bordering with Afghanistan, a lot of people speak Hindko there. And essentially, the minorities, Sikhs and Hindus, they both speak this language of Hindko. There's various different dialects of it. So if you're from Kabul, you speak a different dialect. If you're from Jalalabad, you speak a different and so on. But the the core language is the same. Um, my dad is fluent in Pashto. My He's fluent in Farsi. He's fluent in all those languages because that's what they were taught when they grew up. However, when we immigrated to India, they they held on to their mother tongue, which is which was Hindko. And that's the language that I speak at home. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was the next question. I was <laughs> yeah. were, were you brought up speaking um, uh, by language? Yes. So not, the answer to that is yes. Not even by language. I'm multilingual. So um, I push, uh, Hindko is my primary. It's my mother tongue. However, I grew up on watching, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these, but these are Indian soap operas. There's this very famous channel called Star Plus. And I've grown up watching yeah. Indian soap, Hindi soap operas for much of my life. So not a single person in my family speaks Hindi, but like as with each other, but we are all fluent in it. I am completely fluent in Hindi because of the fact that I've watched, <laughs> I've watched all these shows and I've watched Bollywood for much of my life. Like I spent most of my childhood watching Bollywood and Disney Channel. I'm not completely familiar with Hollywood at all, just Bollywood and, and Disney Channel, that's it. So yeah, I speak um, Hindko, I speak English, I speak Hindi. And then I'm also, I understand Punjabi. I can't really speak it much because Punjabi is a very, very complex uh, language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I can understand it when it's in its very basic ter- a basic sense. But when it gets really complex, I, I don't understand it much. And then um, Urdu is a bit similar to Hindi. It's a different kind of like dialect, yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I can speak Urdu as well. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So how, where did you start in, learning English then? If you were speaking... Um, yeah. This this I can't even pronounce Hindco, it. <laughs> Hindco, yeah. Hindco. Um, Hindco. I'm not sure actually. If you're speaking at home, um, and and you were three or four when you arrived here. Yeah. Um, where, where where did you pick the English up? Because your English is much better than mine. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um. Uh, well, I, I, I've lived in Hayes, which is northwest London, and for most of my teenage years, my, my English was um, very ghetto, very, you know, like how we speak over here. But then I went to university and it kind of just changed, I guess, my dialect. Um, but yeah, so in terms of English, I was a very shy child at school. So when I 
started nursery. So I started nursery here, essentially, and I went to year one, year two, everything. And I feel like I was just very, very small and shy, and I probably didn't speak to anyone. But just like with the Hindi, you learn when you see people speak English. So I guess at some point I picked it up. And then because I had my brother too, we both live in the same house together. We spoke to each other in English. So when I'd come home, we would speak in English to each other and speak to my dad in our mother tongue. Um, So maybe that over time resulted in me um, speaking English. I don't remember the exact moment that I started speaking. But what I do know is maybe I was in year two and I was fluent like by year two. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I I guess it's... If you're learning that from a very early age, you're like a little sponge anyway, yeah. and it, it just it's just mimicking all the time. So, yes, yeah. So, growing up around Hayes, that area, then, so that was um, just trying to think. There, there was Bend It Like Beckham. That yeah, film. I've seen it. Yes, I think I think that that was that was kind of around that area as yes, well. Yes, it was in, I think, Ealing, yeah, which is very close to yeah. me, yeah. So, so it's just around the corner, so, uh, and and she was Sikh. Yes, she was. The, the girl that played yeah. in that, um, Jess. Yes. So that's, uh, yeah. did you see any of that going on as you're growing up? Has <laughs> that been your... Yeah, I mean, from what I, okay, so it's very, the way her mom, her dad were, very, very typical of Asian parents, brown parents. Yeah, they completely, mm-hmm. completely like that. Um, when it comes to them wanting to uphold these particular values, you know, stick to their culture, try to make you a traditional, you know, they say Indian, Indian girl who studies and follows the rules and then eventually gets married and so on. And that was very prevalent. And it still is very prevalent in my culture. This idea that um, guys don't really get the same, um, girls don't get the same freedom uh, freedoms and opportunities as guys do. However, in the last 10 years or so, or so, especially with the new Gen Z that's come around, we they literally, they're able to make their own decisions. It makes me a little bit sad as well, because I'm like, I wish when I was a teenager, I had those opportunities to be able to, like, like I wasn't allowed to go on sleepovers to my friends' houses. I wasn't allowed to stay out till late. I wasn't allowed to go clubbing. There were so many things that were available to my brother. He could come home at 11 o'clock and there would be no issue. But for me, it wasn't It wasn't allowed. And it wasn't until I graduated from university that I was able to go on my very first girl holiday. Like my dad was like, you're not allowed to go on holiday. You know, just the girls, just by yourself. <laughs> and since then, you know, you best believe I have gone on multiple holidays because the moment I was allowed, I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm going on holiday like I'm going on holiday uh which is why when COVID happened I was so sad because I wasn't able to travel as much but you know there were so many things I missed mm. out on that the moment that I had the opportunity I don't know why my dad felt that at 21 it was okay for me to make those decisions but at 18 it wasn't I, I don't know maybe you know his mindset was different mm. I'm not sure but um yeah so I wasn't allowed to do mo- most of the things that um the men could do but I also know that there were other people who were you know I had girl mates from the same community as me who went on holidays who wore what what they wanted who did what they want they like it really you know varies from family to family and um values to values essentially so at the moment um my partner his family is a lot more liberal than mine is so like with me uh, my dad there's a lot of things that I'm still not allowed to do whereas in his family that's not prevalent like that's not how it is but we both came here at the same time like we both came here when we were three you know for over 20 years and there's a lot of things um and I guess it just depends on also the values that you had when you were back home so my dad was from a different part of Afghanistan his family was from a different part so I don't know I think often you know I don't blame them in a way as well because these are people who come from a culture where his sisters got married to men they had never met at like 16 yeah. You know, so then for him to be even comfortable with me going on a holiday by myself, wearing what I want, was like a humongous deal. It was like, you know, how do I say that this is okay? But now he knows that it, it is okay. Um, and it's just about finding that balance between your culture and accepting Western culture and just finding that balance. Like you don't want to let go of your values completely, your cultural traditions completely, but you don't want to hold on to those restrictive, those traditional, those constricting values either because that doesn't allow anybody to grow at all so yeah yeah that's interesting about 
about the cultural side of it and because I, I mean, the the bit I know about Hindi, uh, not Hindi, uh, uh, about Sikh uh, is they they like a good festival. I mean, Diwali, the the, the festival of light. Yeah. I mean, inviting people into that, and 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 I, I've been to a couple of yeah. those in the past, and and they're great fun. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm I'm kind of Church of England, so I'm, I'm not one of the old um, Hatcham, Matcham, Dispatcham types. Yeah. I mean, only go to church for for a, a, a wedding or a christening or a funeral. Yeah. Um, but I guess that that it's a totally different cultural thing for 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 Sikhs, for Muslims, uh, for Catholics, that their experience of of the, their religious life. Yeah. It, it, is, so how was that for you growing up? Um, were you able, I mean, did you go to, I don't know what it's called. It's the Gurdwara. Yeah. Good, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Terrible with <laughs> No worries, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so were you there religiously regular or, or yeah. because because your, your, your dad was having problems when you were growing up? Yeah. You were, was that a big part of your life? So, um, because of all the personal issues that we had going on, my dad has like he wasn't very religious because of everything that happened. So, he was cultural, like he upheld the tradition, he wore the turban, he all of that. But in terms of God and everything, I think for a short while he probably just didn't believe um, in God at all. He'd still listen to prayers. He'd still, you know, we have a photo of um, the the Sikh gurus in our house and everything. But I feel like for a short while, he was probably, you know, on a different path altogether. However, my um, dad's sisters, his brothers were here. So on the weekends when he would go to markets, I'd always be at his sister's house. And she had four children of her own and two, their two, one of, two of their kids, two of the younger kids were the same age as my brother and me. So on the weekends, we'd always go to the Gurdwara. She'd take us on Saturday and Sunday. We were enrolled into Sikh Punjabi speaking uh, and writing class as well. So yeah, the Sikh language. Um, so we'd go every weekend um, without a fail. However, the older I got, um, the more difficult it was for me to go there every weekend. The good thing for my brother was that he actually was enrolled into a Sikh school. So he went to a Sikh high school, whereas I didn't. I went to a different high school. Um, so for him, he continued with his Sikh studies because in his Sikh high school, uh, every morning they'd have prayers, like every single morning there's a small Gurdwara in the actual school. Uh, and then he, you know, Sikh studies was a compulsory subject. Um, Sikh Punjabi language is a compulsory subject, learning, speaking, writing, all of that was very compulsory. But for me, unfortunately, because I stopped going every weekend to my aunt's house and we lived in West Drayton at the time, which was very far from the Gurdwara, um, I wasn't able to continue with it, unfortunately. So I'm not actually, I can't read or write Punjabi. Um, my brother is fluent. He can speak, write. He's been trained and everything, but that's because he went to a Sikh school. So he was able to continue it there. Uh, in terms of, yeah, in terms of like other things, my dad didn't really push us much because of everything that was going on in his personal life. Like religion was never a priority, unfortunately. Healing was moving on from everything that we'd undergone and experienced was. Uh, even now, like where I, so I, on my own accord started praying. So I got a, um, so you can get Sikh holy books that are translated in English. So it's written in Punjabi on one side and it's written in English on the other side. So obviously I can't read the Punjabi. So I started reading the English side and I started teaching myself how to pray, um, on my own accord. So when I like, you know, when I was 18 and stuff and I got my first car and so on, I just decided to drive myself to the Gurdwara, take myself. So I made that own decision to go to the Sikh Gurdwara, pray uh, and be as in touch with my religion as I could. However, we're not practicing Sikhs. We're not baptized. So, you know, when you get baptized Sikhs, they actually wear turbans, yeah. like women and men wear turbans. They don't uh, do anything to their hair. They don't, you know, get their eyebrows done, waxing, threading, cutting hair, none of that. However, I do, you know, I do get my eyebrows done and everything. I do wax, a thread, all of that. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things in terms of baptized Sikhs um, don't eat meat. We eat meat. So there's a lot of differences in that respect. Um, I wouldn't say I'm religious. I would definitely say that I do believe in a God. I believe in um, God. I believe that there's a lot of teachings within the religion that I've been brought up with that align with my own like values and stuff. But 
I feel like had things been different and had our experiences not been as adverse as they were growing up, if my mom was there, I know that I would have been a lot more religious, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's just have a quick look at, um, let's just take you back to school. And what was your secondary school like? So, so different from, from your brother. So the issue is that my brother actually, so we lived in Hayes and my brother was enrolled in this particular school, which wasn't a Sikh school. So he started year seven in this, you know, standard normal school. However, he was bullied because of his turban. So in year seven, he was very badly bullied. And because he was because of this experience that he had, uh, we made a meeting with the Sikh school, which was just down the road because it was very hard to get into that school. So we made a meeting and my dad spoke to them and he was like, look, my son's very badly bullied and, you know, we want him to be enrolled in your school. So then he was, as a result, enrolled in that school. However, um, usually when your brother or your sibling is going to that school, you're automatically like you're given priority to be able to go into the school. But I don't know what it was. Like my dad, I don't know whether he was drunk and he forgot to fill out the form. I don't know what it was. But here we were at the end of my year six and I did not have an application for the school. So then my my school was just like, OK, you know what? We're going to have to enroll you into whichever school is able to take you because, you know, now it's too late to be enrolled into that school. They have no spaces left. They've given everything out. So even if your brother goes here, unfortunately, you're not going to get a space. So then I was enrolled into the nearest school that was available, which was um, this school called Swakely's School for Girls. It was a girls school. Um, and that was literally the only school left. There was nothing else. Now the school is very good. It's an academy. Uh, they make you do a test when you go in. It's it's doing really, really well. But this is like 15, 15 years ago. Um, so when I went, uh, it was a standard school, uh, predominantly uh, mixed race, people of color. In my class, we probably have like 70% would be people of color. 30% would be, you know, white. Um, and yeah, that's it. Like our teachers were the same as well. Most of our teachers... I, we wouldn't see as much representation in terms of the teachers because at that time I don't think there were many people who were like first gen immigrants who had become teachers and you know now we have a lot more people of color teaching and all of that but yeah at that time very very people you know people of color working class standard very very standard there was not um I don't feel like I was always motivated to to study to my like highest degree or I felt like I had a lot of opportunities available to me going into a state school I just felt like okay yeah go to school study go home like I and at home as well there was never like you know dad didn't sit us down and say okay homework time and all of that so homework was on our own accord everything was on our own accord uh I graduated I um went to school when in year 11 I came out with standard grades A's B's C's but it was when I went into sixth form that I decided to change my life around because I was just like I was like, I understand that I'm in a state school and I understand there's not many opportunities available to me because of my circumstances and situation. However, it doesn't mean that it ends there. I've got my entire life ahead of me. And there was this other girl who really, really inspired me. She was my classmate. I had known her since year seven. And she was also Afghan, but she was Afghan Muslim. She had experienced a lot in her life as well. She'd, you know, gone through hell uh, in her personal life, but she was so studious she was so motivated she was like I'm going to you know go to Oxford University I'm going to study law I'm going to make something out of my life um and she'd come out with all A stars and A's in in school and I looked at her and I was like if she can do it despite everything she's undergone why can't I so when I went into sixth form that's when I made a, a decision myself that I'm going to get a degree go to a really really good university and change my life around um, and it was all on my own accord. It was my own, you know, it was like, I was like, I'm going to study. And then I came out um, of sixth form. I came out with three A's and a B. I went to UCL. I studied philosophy and then I did my master's as well. But that was all, you know, it, it was on me. It, I had to just kind of make the best of the situation that I had. And yeah, just kind of motivate myself to study and get a good, good degree. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I've actually found that. Um... So during my time in Afghanistan, the the, the little contact I, that I did have with with women over there, and particularly on my 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 middle tour uh, when I first went to Helmand, I'll just take you back when I was in Kabul. Um, I did quite a bit of work down at the Lawyer Jirga, um, which was a big countrywide conference for want of another word. Uh, and there was a there was a woman speaking there, who was a real inspiration. And I I had the opportunity to, to interview her for the ISAF News, 
I then met her in 2006 in in Helmand, and she was I think she was a local councillor that was working down at the women's centre in Lashkagat, and she was able to come into. Um, we brought her and a few other ladies into into the camp. A fair amount of secrecy going on about it around the whole operation, but. They came in and they recorded a couple of episodes of what we called the the ISAF news. Um, but it seems that uh, females from Afghanistan tend to have this instilled belief in themselves and and, and this drive to be able to um, to better themselves with all the adversity that that they've gone through yeah. and and the fact that women were allowed to to vote they 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 got a vote in in afghanistan and there was i think almost a hundred percent turnout uh, that who were eligible eligible to vote in afghanistan which is amazing that uh, that they they'd got that and i think you've probably inherited that mentality from, from your Afghan roots. Yeah, I guess so, because, you know, these are women whose mums and grandmas had a lot more freedom than they did. Like, pre-war yeah. Afghanistan, pre-revolution Afghanistan was a, such an open, a modern country where women were allowed to wear skirts, dresses, you know, this, the hijab wasn't compulsory. They were able to work and they were able to do everything. They were able to enjoy all the freedoms that come with just being, you know, human, essentially. Um, and probably, Absolutely. yeah, and their their mums and grandmas and great grandmas had that freedom, and to have that taken away from you, um, you know, during war and revolution, it probably pushed them even further and said, no, like we're gonna we're gonna make the best of this situation that we we mm. can. Um, and yeah, I feel like you know life doesn't give you a second chance. Like when my dad talks about how he escaped um, and how he fled, he was like, I literally, you know, there was a helicopter. It was off the ground and I had to run towards it and kind of jump um to to flee. Um and the way he talks about it is literally like, you know, there's bomb blasts going off everywhere. There's, you know, everything is all over the place. And you're literally trying to flee to save your life as best as you can and then come back for your family. You know, find a way to come back for your family and take them with you. And when you get a chance to be able to better your life, you you have to. So even now, like with everything that we experienced and stuff, my dad at this point in time has touched with like recovered, healed. Um, he's reached a point in his life where he takes care of himself. He takes care of us. He takes care of everyone because you get to a point, Tim, where you're like, I can't keep fighting for the past. The past is no longer there. I have to just make do with what I have. Uh, when he eventually got diagnosed and when he, you know, received medication and help for, for himself, he really wanted to make a change. He really wanted to change his life around. He joined the gym. He started taking care of his health. He, and, I always told myself that, you know, I'm going to face whatever adversity I have and make the best of my situation. And when I wanted to start studying, when I said, okay, I'm going to go to university and everything is for me, because if I didn't do it, it, it wasn't going to impact anyone but me. You know, I was going to end up getting married young and, you know, living with probably an abusive husband. Who knows? Who knows what my life could have could have been like had I just not taken a chance to to better myself and be the person that I am today. And I I really, really believe in it. I feel like you know, often we make excuses for our actions and for our current present self and say, oh, yeah, my life is this crap because of everything that's happened to me. But you have to use your past as a way to change your present and your future. And, yeah, that's what I see it as. So the only thing you can do with the past is learn, learn from, from it. it. Exactly. You can't, you can't change the can't past. Change. You have to learn from it. And, and and you can influence what you do with the future. And it looks like that that, that you sort of, grabbed it by the, the horns <laughs> yeah. and and jumped on and gone with it. So yeah. well done for that. So six four. Yeah. You 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 work really hard to turn yourself around. You've got a place at uh, UCL yeah. Yeah. University College of London. What did you study? I studied philosophy. So not the typical you know, science, medicine, <laughs> law that you could expect from a brown person. I studied philosophy. I studied philosophy, yeah. Um, I was just really interested in it. I just loved the way it made me think outside the box. I, It was so inspirational. My teacher was so inspiring in the subject, the topic. It just, 
it enthralled me and I knew that this is all I want to study and I studied yeah, at university. So how long was you studying that for? So I studied for three years. I studied philosophy for three years. Um, and then, as you know, we'll go into later, I guess. But um, I wanted to be an author. So in like every summer while I was doing my philosophy degree, I was working on my novel manuscript, my young adult fiction book that I was writing. Uh, when I graduated three years later, I said, OK, let me let me get a stable job and then I will you know, this is my backup job. And then I will write my book, finish my book and then publish it. So I decided to do a PGCE. So like a teacher training course. Started that at King's College London. And three months in, I just realized how miserable I was because I wasn't following my true calling, which was to write books. And I really, really wanted to write books. But what are the odds of a brown girl like me, yourself, you know, who's from Afghanistan, such a minority within a minority, had so many adverse experiences to even get a book published? Like that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but then I told myself that if that's the mentality that I'm going to adopt, then I'm going to be unhappy for the rest of my life. So then I decided to three months into my PGC, I decided to leave it. And I decided to go back to my part time job, which was working next retail on the weekends and finish my book, finish my book. And then I went back to study philosophy the following year. I decided to do my master's in it. Um, and this was while I was building my platform, my social media platform, writing and working on my manuscript. I just needed to give myself time. I was like, uh, what makes me really happy? Philosophy. Uh, I want, I've always wanted to do a master's. Um, so I was like, I'm going to do my master's and continue studying it. So I went, I went to King's College London, back to King's College London and did my master's in it. And I worked on my writing on the side. Yeah. So what do you hope to gain from from? A master's in philosophy. Okay, so if you study... What sort of job could you go forward so, with, with a degree in philosophy? For me, I always wanted to be an author. So studying philosophy was not for a, this is a means to an end for me to get this job. I feel like the only reason why now, right, the only reason why you should go to university is either because you really love the subject and you want to learn, or you want to make a career. If you want to make a career, do law, science, medicine, so on, those are, you know, pharmacy those are take you to a particular path and if you really love the subject that you really love art or fine art you really love history you really those particular humanities is never going to guarantee you a job in that field like what could mm. you study you know like you like you can't really what could you be sorry you can't really there's no specific job um to be after you you do humanities you know you can do humanities and end up being a lawyer like there's no there's no direct correlation so I studied philosophy for the sake of studying philosophy because I really, really loved the subject. That's why I studied it, because I already had in my mind what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an author. Philosophy would open my mind further. You know, there were so many theories. There were so many things that I could use in my writing. And even till this day, my mind is open in a different way altogether. And I use all those things that I learned in philosophy and incorporate it in my words. So for me, it was just about learning. It wasn't about, you know, because I already knew in my head what I wanted to do. Uh, now that's something that a lot of people really, really don't know what they want to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's okay. Like, so, yeah. so, so having the ability to to know what you want to do and then and then go for it, which is which is pretty good. So, philosophy. I don't know an awful lot about philosophy. I can, I can, but maybe may, maybe I do because because. I kind of, I don't understand it. I think that's the, that's the problem with it. I probably don't understand what philosophy is all about in the first place. So, yeah. So, so can you enlighten us a little bit what philosophy is about? And, and yeah. Yeah, let me go back 10 years <laughs> to my degree. <laughs> so I graduated, well, not 10 years. Yeah, I, I started, well, yeah, started studying at 18, um, graduated by 21. So, yeah, around seven years. Um, so, essentially, philosophy asks the big questions. So, you have these basic things where with science, you have a specific answer or you have a way of getting to the answer with science, psychology, all of those. Uh, if you have found out that there's this particular infection out there, what you need to do is you need to test various um chemicals and so on try and find how you can look try and find an antidote to it to, to this particular infection or you try and find out how things work with philosophy we ask why like why does this 
happen? Why does this work the way that it's working? Why do we exist as opposed to how do we exist? How do we exist? People who, you know, believe in um, evolution, we exist through evolving, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, the Big Bang theory helps explain how the universe came about, so on. So those are the how things happened, how atoms work, how molecules exist, how the planets exist, how we, you know, how the solar system works. We ask the why. Why did, for example, the Big Bang happen? That's not a question that I've ever studied, but so why? So why do I have consciousness? Why do I believe that I am a person when I am talking to you? Where does this I come from? Is this I a person? Is this I a brain? Is this I uh, this clump of consciousness that can come out of me the moment that I pass away? Or am I a body and a brain? In that case, if I am a body and a brain, when I pass away, that means nothing else comes out of me. That's it. I am dead, right? Uh, if I am just a brain, that means if my brain was taken out of my body and put into another person's body, that means that person would be me. Now, if I'm a clump of consciousness, if I'm just this little, then why is this in, attached to my body? And where does it go when it comes out? It's, it's things like that. So that's one idea, the, the personal identity crisis. Then you have ethics, uh, the idea of um, what is morality, what is right, what is wrong. So um, I'm sure you've come across the trolley problem. If you had a trolley uh, going across a rail track, if you all you had to do was press a lever and those five people wouldn't die, but that one person would, would you pull the lever? And then they're like, oh, yeah, I would because I would save the five. Why are five lives better than the one? And then that results in more problems. Uh, you know, then there's another, there's like a, an alternative to the trolley problem where it's like, oh, okay, what if you, um, what if, you didn't have to press the lever or something like that. So it's it's morality, essentially, ethics. Then you have the philosophy of politics. So where do political theories come from? Socialism, Marxism, they're all theories. You know, politics is based on theorizing uh, what an ideal state would look like, what an ideal way of living would look like, what an ideal society, you know, what the economic state would look like, what a utopian state would look like. And then they base the practicalities from that and they go forth. And then you have the philosophy of history. So you have like, historically, these things happened, where did they come from? Why? You know, so on. And then you have the philosophy of art, um, where art and history are so linked, art and politics are so linked. So what kind of message was this particular art displaying? There's a lot. There's a lot of facets of philosophy. There's a philosophy of medicine. So like, you know, when you're diagnosing people with depression and so on, there is a, like an actual philo uh, philosophy um, module on whether diagnosing people in this way is correct or this way. Why do we use this particular diagnosis and, and so on? So philosophy is literally that it's a it's the kind of subject which asks us to step out of the box and stop accepting the status quo. Why should we accept this? What is the reason for it? Think for yourself. Essentially, just think for yourself. And that's the easiest way I could summarize it. Like, there's also philosophy of literature. There's philosophy of everything. You can study the philosophy of everything. And all these modules are incorporated in the degree, essentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting. That's explained a huge amount. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot more. So, I would have had more knowledge had we asked 20-year-old me who was actually studying the subject at the time. But, yeah, that's most I remember anyway. <laughs> that's good. So it's, it's, it's all about questioning. All about questioning, yeah. All about yeah. questioning. I love yeah. that. All about and that's what we're doing yeah. now. I'm, I'm philosophizing on you. I'm mm -hmm. questioning you. <laughs> yeah, religion is a philosophy of life as well. When you think about it, like religions yeah. try to, um, like, obviously, I don't really agree with religions as such as the theoretical aspect of like, when, so for instance, with Christianity, Islam, anything, the idea is that they're trying to put moral values, this is morally right, this is morally wrong, that's mm. ethics which is philosophy, you're trying to tell us what is right or wrong. Uh, when it comes to, say, abortion, euthanasia, they have their own lists of what's okay to do. What's, they also have their lists on how to live. They also have politics incorporated in them. You know, how to live, how to be the ideal person, how to, what does existence look like? You know, are you a spirit? Are you a soul? Is there life after death? All of these questions are considered in philosophy. All of these questions are question, you know, raised, answered, theorized. There's, and for me, that's probably why I was very intrigued by religion after I studied philosophy because I was like, essentially what religions were trying to do was create this like all-encompassing philosophical theory of how to live 
But then years and years and incorporation of culture and this and that, it just got very distorted. It just got very, very messy. Um, but it started with a question and it was why. Why is existence here, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Right. That's, um, you've always wanted to be an author. Right. <laughs> so what's your first book about? Ah, okay. So um, essentially, I wanted to be an author for young adult fiction books. So, you know, uh, teenagers, young adults, and I wanted to write stories. Um, however, that took a U-turn. So I wanted to write books because I wanted to be, you know, I saw myself as being a novelist one day. But then when I turned 21, I left my teacher training course, as we um, we spoke about earlier, and I went back to my retail job. In the process, I had a few adverse experiences. I had my heart broken, unfortunately. So then I decided to create a particular, and this is 21-year-old me, you know, you know, lives in a little bubble and all of that. So I really wanted to heal from those particular experiences. I really wanted to stop hurting because my mum's loss was one that I couldn't feel as a three-year-old, but this loss was so, so deep. It was so strong mm -hmm. that I felt like I was genuinely losing someone all over again. I was genuinely experiencing death and it triggered so many emotions in me, so many, you know, my past, everything. I thought this is the cherry on the cake. This is, this is probably just God playing at me. He's laughing at me. He's telling me I've given you this, 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 this to do it with. And now you deal with this as well. But I would, I wasn't going to back down. Um, and it was the darkest, darkest year of my life, but I decided to create an Instagram page and share my writing online, essentially. So I started sharing writing about like feelings and emotions and self-love, healing, depression, all of that. So really, really heavy, hardcore, deep topics. And within six months, the page just grew. At the same time, I'm working in my part-time job. I'm writing my novel manuscript and I'm doing this. And my page just blew up. It went from 500 to 5,000 to 20,000 followers. And then it went to 50,000 followers. And then my readers were like, we want to read a book of this. We want you to publish this book. So I decided to self-publish my very first book, which was a, um, a micro poetry book. So that's when the Insta poetry scene was like really prevalent. So the, we had so many Insta poets. We had Rupi Kaur, we had R.H. Sin, R.M. Drake. There were so many who were doing so well at the time. They're still doing very well. Um, so I decided, OK, let me self-publish. And then when I self-published my very first book and it did really well, I was like, oh, this is actually this is really good. I can build myself a portfolio of books that have done really well. And then eventually I can, you know, get an agent and publish my, my novels. This is great. However, mm. the novels have always been a selfish dream. They've been a dream for me. This is what would make me very happy. But the more that I wrote about these very heavy laden topics, I realized that I didn't have to write for just myself. I could write for other people. Growing up, books had been a form of escapism for me. And I thought, Going into a book, reading a story was a very good way to escape reality and feel better. And that, you know, that's great. But then when I started writing about all these very, very heavy topics, I realized that writing doesn't need to be an escape. It can also be a solution. It can also be a path to healing. It can also be a way to coming to terms with what you're experiencing. And I decided to be very vulnerable. I decided to be very, very vulnerable with my words. I spoke about mental health, grief, depression. Um, I spoke about happiness, attachment. There were so many things, loneliness. And the more that I received messages from my readers saying, you know, Ruby, I, I felt alone up, up until this point. Ruby, I didn't think that someone else understood how I was feeling. Ruby, today I was going to do something absolutely horrifying, but your words stopped me. And I was like, I need to not, I need to never stop writing this. I need to never stop sharing mm -hmm. this content with the world. If it has the ability to change at least one person's life, I will do it because my fiction writing was to change my life it was to change me and make me happy but these words were changing people's lives it was they were impacting people and that's when I found my purpose and my purpose became changing the world one one word at a time helping people on their healing journeys one word at a time started writing articles for lifestyle health you know mental health websites magazines online magazines I started a blog started a monthly newsletter I started appearing at like, um, I appeared at the Science Museum, Trafalgar Square, went to poetry nights, performed all these pieces. Uh, I went back to my school. I did a mental health workshop. I decided that it wasn't just about the writing anymore. It was about making a change in the world. If I have changed someone's life, if I have stopped them from doing something, you know, in, in, incredible to themselves, 
or if I have shown them that their past doesn't define their future, then I've served my purpose. I've lived a fulfilling life. Um, and I also did like a short skit of working in children's services part time while I was writing, because as an author, as an artist, it's very hard to make a living from your writing from the get go. Like it's, it's just not possible as an artist to do to that. You always need a side job. So when I went and I worked in children's services, for much of my life, I had been on child in need plans. Growing up, I had been on a child protection, child in need plan up until, you know, I went to high school and year 10, year 11. And now I was on the other side. I was holding these conferences. I was organizing these child protection conferences. And I saw so many of the same patterns. People who, you know, have been brought up in poverty or working class or with an alcoholic father end up finding an alcoholic partner, end up going into drugs. And there's just constantly, it was the same cycle, same pattern. Mum, you know, got pregnant at 16, you're going to get pregnant. At like, they just didn't feel like there was anything more to life. Like, you know, abuse, abusive um, dad, abusive husband, abusive brother. No, like, then I realized that people felt like they had to stay in these cycles. They had to, they can't break away from that cycle. And I was a living example of having broken away from that cycle of finding myself in such a difficult situation, thinking that I couldn't be what I wanted to be and now making a career out of writing about healing, which no one in my community had ever done before. So then I told myself that I'm going to, you know, trying my best to inspire people to break out of that cycle, working class people, people of color, people who find themselves in, you know, drugs, alcohol, anything. And I was going to try and make a change through my words as best as I could. So I continued self-publishing my books. At the time, I was still looking for a literary agent, wasn't able to find a literary agent. My page grew. I went from 20 to 50,000 to 100,000 to 200,000, 300,000. Now I'm on 500,000 uh, followers on Instagram, Instagram alone. And then I finally published my most successful book, which was um, Dear Self, which is a bite-sized self-help book. So it's got the same pieces that I share online about like self-love, self-worth, grief, love, heartbreak, a lot of it. But then it's also chapters and chapters of a narrative as well, as you would find in a self-help book. Mm -hmm. Published it in the midst of COVID. Didn't know it was going to do any any well because obviously everyone, you know, we were all so overwhelmed with COVID. It ended up selling 25,000 copies in the first year alone. And I self-published it. So it wasn't even like there was no marketing budget. You know, there was no mm -hmm. big company helping me or anything. And at the same time, I was like, okay, I'm going to continue writing my, my young adult fiction book. The one that I had written at 21, at 27, I did not find it interesting anymore because my writing had expanded so much over the past few years. Started a new one gone in touch with a brand new agent, uh, got a literary agent, and now I'm working on my self-help book, very first self-help book, like proper self-help, and my young adult fiction mm -hmm. book. So the self-help book is a way for me to help other people and continue serving my purpose of changing the world through my words. And then obviously the young adult fiction feeds my ego and makes me happy that I'm able to be the novelist mm. that I wanted to be the young 10 year old me can look up to and say yes I did I did that so yeah at the moment I'm doing like YouTube videos as well on the same subjects that I share online I write articles newspaper article um, newsletter mailing list blogs everything I'm trying my best to spread the message as I can through my words but yeah my book Dear Self is probably uh, the best-selling book that I've written so far and the one that shares the message most about what it is that I'm trying to trying to do through my words. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I know that, that, that is a, a, a fantastic story just in itself. Thank you. Thank you. And how, how, how you've gone from, from, from your, your tough upbringing to changing your life totally, that you could have gone into that, that, that cycle that you were saying yeah. um and 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 inspiring other people not uh, to break free of it and, and just get on amazing so do you see yourself as um the next jk yeah if i wrote um if i wrote something fantastical but i'm writing like okay so Another thing that I really want to tackle in the fiction world, in the literary world, is the fact that firstly, women writers are so underrepresented, but also brown South Asian women writers in the fiction genre are so underrepresented. Um, you know, it, it's true. The literary world is very, very white dominated. There's not as many people of color in there. So when, when I write my young adult fiction book at the moment, it's a book that significantly is prioritizing people of color. 
So it's a standard young adult fiction book. It's a standard, you know, book like that you'd read by, say, John Green about teenagers, you know, chilling out, having fun. Like it, it, It's normal. However, it's normal from a perspective from two people of color. Um, and that's that's what I'm trying to trying to portray. I love fantasy. I love J.K. Rowling. I love, you know, and I definitely want to go into that. But I'm going to start it off with a little bit of like a romance young adult fiction. And I see myself as a New York Times bestselling author. Like I see myself, you know, making the billboards. Um, and I always, whenever I speak to my partner about it, I don't say if, I always say, so when I become a New York Times bestselling author, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And that is the goal. The goal is to write novels, represent people of color, but also write healing words, help people on their healing journeys. There's just too many things that I want to do. Um, but it's all at the base of it all, at the crux of it all, is writing, content creating, and helping people through my writing. That's all it is. Brilliant. So how can people get out of your book? My books are available everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere at all. They're available on Amazon, the book depository, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones. Um, they can be purchased everywhere. All they need to do is write my name, which is Ruby Dahl. So it's not Dahl, it's not D-A-H-L, it's D-H-A-L. So I'm not related to Roald Dahl. Um, and yeah, they're available online everywhere. So because they're self-published, they're not available in the stores at the moment. But obviously when I, when I traditionally publish all my next books, they will be in the store as well. But online, you can go everywhere. Amazon, Waterstones, Barnes & Noble, uh, Book Depository, which does free worldwide shipping. They're available. I also do signed copies, actually, as well. So, yeah, which can be available from my, my website. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's your website? It's uh, rubydial.com. So www.rubydial.com. Brilliant. Yeah. Ruby, Um. I'm oh, thank you for speaking to me today. No, I, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next one. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.